Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Burn without notice. Deadly forest fires are tearing through parts of Chile. Officials believe some may have been set deliberately. And a journalist from Viña del Mar tells us what is left looks like a war zone. Demand outstrips supply. Migrants are arriving in Denver by the thousands, many of them sent north by Texas. One volunteer helping new arrivals says they won't be able to go on much longer without outside help. Out of their element in the elements, a volunteer in Halifax tells us how people living in tents there coped with Nova Scotia's worst blizzard in decades and how to make sure they won't have to do it again. Catching his drift, the photo of a Cape Breton man beside a six-meter-high snowbank quickly went viral. We'll hear from his wife, who says they've been digging for days and the digging is nowhere near done. Touching bass as the bass player for the Whalers, the late Aston family man Barrett provided rhythm and melody, making the low end a high point. And transmission impossible. Thieves in Alabama somehow make off with a 200-foot-tall radio tower leaving the station owner extremely downcast about his broadcasts. As it happens, the Monday edition, Radio That's Afraid, this happens with great frequency. As the smoke begins to clear, people in Chile are surveying the damage and trying to come to terms with a horrifying weekend of wildfires that have left at least 122 people dead and hundreds more missing. More than 3,000 homes were destroyed in the Valparaiso region located on the coast. The president has declared two days of mourning as his country grapples with its biggest disaster since the 2010 earthquake. Graciela Ibanez is a freelance journalist who lives in Viña del Mar. but We reached her in Los Vilos, Chile. Graciela, I know you had to leave Viña del Mar, but what did it look like when you last saw it? I've never been in a war, but I feel it like it's it's a war happened. Uh, you just can't believe all these houses, whatever is left of the houses, <clears throat> all the ashes, uh, the smoke. You you can't breathe all that area. I went there today. I I drove through the area affected, part of the area affected, and 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 you just can't believe it's it's i would say out of the world probably you see the cars the cars lots of cars all burned houses uh whatever is left and um and and people trying to find whatever they can find I, I, many of them are looking for relatives for friends uh, there there's still a lot of people missing mm-hmm. and and probably they won't find every everyone you were there on Friday. How did things unfold? So it was a sunny day of summer, full of people in the beach, 
and then we start seeing this big cloud, dark cloud that was coming from uh, the area affected by the fires. And, and, and we look to the, we would say to the interior of the city mm -hmm. towards the mountains and we couldn't believe it. And then it continued for more than 24 hours. Was there any warning that these fires were coming? I mean, you, you could see it from everywhere. So we knew there were fires and we're in the fire season. Unfortunately, it's, it's the summer, it's the dry season. And uh, we usually get fires in, in Chile at this time of the year. The thing is like this was in, in my city. So it was quite a shocking seeing your city burned out. And um, it went all through the night. And it was a very windy day mm -hmm. and, and the wind continued over the night. So that was terrible for the fire, for the people mm -hmm. and, and the area affected because it just moved the fire from one place to the other. And, and in the end, we had 25% um, of uh, the urban area of Viña del Mar with fire. Wildfire season uh, at this time of year, it's expected, as you said, but officials have also said there's a criminal investigation. They're concerned that some of these fires were set deliberately. Why do they think that? Yes, some um, officials like the governor of the mm -hmm. Valparaiso region, he said this has been intentionally caused. There are going to be legal actions against these people. I hope they can identify them and, and they can go to jail because the damage they have done, it's, it's unbelievable. I get a little bit of a sense of what Viña del Mar must be like just from what you've said so far, but can you describe the region Valparaiso as well for our listeners? What are these areas like? Viña del Mar is next to Valparaiso, the city of Valparaiso. It's also part of the Valparaiso region. And um, Viña del Mar is a touristic city. It's uh, now full of tourists because we're in the middle of the summer. So um, February is like the August month in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Everyone is at the beach. So we have festivals, music festivals, um, book events, uh, cultural events, uh, art events. So it's really like a feast. The city is a feast. And now we are in this tragedy and uh, many of the events that were happening these days were cancelled. And, um, and, and you think it twice if you want to come visit Viña del Mar now. Have any of the people who had to leave their homes, have they been able to go back and see what, if anything, is left? Well, there are people who lost their homes and, and their shelters. The local government has set some shelters with food, toiletries, water, clothes. And, and there are people also who, who had to evacuate their homes because they couldn't breathe and, and it could, the fire could arrive to their homes. Many of them have come back to their homes and they are fine. But um, the damage, we're just seeing it now, how big it is. For example, the, the legal medical service that identifies the body is overwhelmed. I mean, mm -hmm. that doesn't have the capacity to check every body or piece of body that arrives. And so far, only 25% of uh, the bodies that have been found have been identified. And the mayor of Piña del Mar says there, there are more than 300 people missing at this time. You're a journalist, but you're also covering something that's happening in your home, 
and I can hear in your voice that it's it's a place that's very special to you. So what has this been like for you watching that, reporting on it, and then having to leave? Yes, it's it's very how would I said it. It's it's sad because um when when you go and report outside your city or in other places in the world, you know very few people or maybe you don't know anyone. And here I know people. So I know people affected. I have friends of friends uh, who uh, lost their homes, relatives of people I know uh, who uh, these people don't know where they are. I mean, uh, we all know someone who's been affected and, and every story is more tragic than than the one you he- just heard. All these stories are going to come up and, and 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 maybe it's not going to be in the news anymore, but but we as living in Viña del Mar, we will continue seeing this. For us, is is the beginning of of something that I don't know how long it would last, and and we will continue uh, hearing these stories and trying to help where we can because it's it's impossible to to help everyone, but at least we're trying. Graciela, thank you for your time. Thank you. Graciela Ibanez is a freelance journalist. We reached her in Los Vilos, Chile. It was the worst snowstorm to hit Nova Scotia in 20 years. Businesses were shuttered and residents were warned to stay off the roads and in their homes. But in downtown Halifax, people were still out on the streets. A cluster of tents and shelters near City Hall on the Grand Parade remained occupied through the worst of the storm's massive snowfall and high winds. Last month, we spoke to volunteer Steve Wilsack, who was helping bring power and heating to the shelters. We reached Mr. Wilsack again today at the encampment in Halifax, and you should know this conversation touches briefly on the subject of suicide. After the weekend that was, Stephen, how are people doing today? The uh, the residents of the tents, uh, they're cold, they're frustrated. Uh, it's been a long two days, uh, nonstop weather. A lot of people were without medicine. They were, some with or without food. A lot of people, uh, even in a tough time, even to get to the washroom because they had outhouses here. I was reading a little bit of what people were dealing with through the weekend, but just give our listeners sort of a, a snapshot, if you would, of how difficult it was for people in the encampment, trapped yes. essentially, right? Yes, and that's a, probably the best word to describe. They're literally trapped uh, within a confinement of 36 square feet. There is uh, blowing snow. You couldn't see anything, and it just n- never stopped. And even during the daytime and the nighttime, it was relentless. And there was a lot of um, concerned souls, and a lot of times uh, with people that are mentally unhealthy, uh, this creates a, a stress even more than normal. So it, it was chaos at times. And how did you try to deal with that chaos and help people? Well, uh, Matthew Grant and I, who are, are here at the encampment every day, we uh, were here almost providing counseling uh, at times. We're also providing security checks. Uh, at times, we've actually 
uh, took some food around to the uh, different residents as well and reassured them that everything's going to be fine. Uh, we had a wonderful service here in Halifax, a search and rescue. They came here as well to see if anyone was interested in going to an emergency shelter. Did people from the encampments go to shelters during the worst of it? The question I ask is that would anybody go to a shelter and anybody who's throughout the province of Nova Scotia and majority of people would uh, would be staying at their own residence and that's how the residents of the encampments did feel. There might have been one or two people that wanted to go because of an emergency situation but everybody just uh, felt more safe in their own their own backyard and uh, the community supports them for that as well. Stores and restaurants were closed as well. I mean, do people ha- have enough to eat? Uh, food was limited. Uh, in fact, on the second day, there was a couple of places that we would normally go to that uh, literally running out of food. And the other concern was is that uh, the local drugstores were closed due to the weather. And uh, a lot of uh, unhoused depend upon their, their medication. So that can cause havoc as well. So it, it was uh, it was a tense situation. It was probably one of the worst stores, storms that I've seen in a, in a long while. And to be... Uh, tenting in this type of weather, it's it really is really frustrating for a lot of people. You saw a lot this weekend. You've seen a lot uh, over the weeks you've been volunteering at the encampment. Did anything surprise you this weekend, Stephen? Well, what I'm surprised at is that we're still talking about Nova Scotians unhoused people being in tents. And we really have to start working together to solve this solution. For me, it's housing first. And we really have to identify that this is a 911 emergency and this is a crisis. And we just demonstrated if something's not done, then people are going to literally die or people's lives are at risk. So what will it take in order to change the system and, and to get everybody all walks of life recognizing that this is dire straits for the unhoused. We have a crisis in terms of housing. We have a crisis in terms of high rents. We need to identify these issues and get people indoors. Like This is inhumane to be talking about encampments and talking about villages of people all around our province and all around Canada. What will it take? What will it take? What will it take? It literally has to change some of the systems like we have people that want to go to detox they can't get in we have people that need treatment they can't get in we have people that need housing we need to literally get the checkbook out and rewrite the system we need the federal government we need the provincial government we need the municipal government we need business community we need outreach groups all working together collectively sitting around the table to solve this. No one person's going to solve this. Until we do that, we're going to be throwing money at systems that don't work. We're going to have people that are going to die, and it has to change. So to me, it's about cooperation. It's about redefining on how to deal with the housing crisis and how to deal with our system that's broken. This is uncharted waters for everybody. Did anyone come close to dying this weekend, Stephen? Uh, yes. Uh, we had uh, one situation that was uh, somebody was literally having a mental health crisis and they were wandering around in the snow. And luckily we had security here in order to help save that individual. And 
We have other crises similar to that that I don't want to talk about, but, you know, there is issues in terms of treatment, in terms of detox, and people mentally are unstable. And we had one individual that talked about taking his life. And again, you know, we were able to deal with it. But those are the types of conversations that I don't like having, and I don't like seeing people even mention those words. I actually had to take a, an implement away from somebody at one point during the weekend. That's how tense it gets. How are you doing? It's tough. And, uh, you know, our volunteers, Matthew and I, you know, this is 80 days straight. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're here and uh, we want to make sure that people from Nova Scotia that are vulnerable are protected, but it wears on you and we just need help. We all need help in order to make this go away and the sooner that we can do that then we can start to really get back to you know our families and our friends and uh, it's a challenge at times but we're here fighting the fight and we just need more people to help Stephen, thank you thank you for just shedding the light on the situation and uh, let's really really try to make this a better place to live Steve Wilsack volunteers at the Grand Parade Encampment in Halifax that's where we reached him And if you've been following the news around the storm, you might have come across a photo from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. It shows a man standing in the narrowest of shoveled walkways between his barn and a truly epic snowdrift. We'll have that story behind that photo a little later on the program. It started as a normal Friday for Brett Elmore, owner of the radio station WJLX in Jasper, Alabama. And then he got a phone call from a landscaping crew that was doing work at the site of the station's radio tower. The crew had concerning news and also utterly unfathomable news. We reached Brett Elmore in Jasper. Brett, what did they tell you when you got that phone call on Friday? Well, they told me that uh, the tower was gone. Um... And I uh, basically said, uh, what do you mean the tower is gone? And they said the tower was gone. And I, I, I asked, are you sure you're at the right site? And, uh, the 200-foot tall tower, to be clear. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's nearly a 200-foot tower. I mean, uh, and he, he looked through the property and, and couldn't find it. And I and, uh, told him to look in the building. And he said the door was uh, halfway open. Mm. And uh, I told him to let me know what was inside, and uh, uh, unfortunately, they had taken the transmitter and uh, other pieces of equipment. The police are investigating, mm-hmm. obviously, and they've spent some time down there today. Um, you know, we've just been putting a game plan together on w- what the next steps are. There had been a, a similar, just, just a month or so, less than a month or so ago, a similar tower was toppled over, not stolen, though by uh, looters ostensibly you know looking for for copper had right. you got had you heard of that i mean are folks kind of on alert for these kinds of things or did it come completely out of nowhere well obviously it comes as a surprise i i, I know you you read stuff about that all mm-hmm. you know from time to time in the in the trade publications and uh you kind of hope that doesn't happen to you or you think it may not happen to you but uh, uh, unfortunately for us, it did. 
but I've been around the, the radio business a long time, been around it uh, all my life. My dad was in, in radio, so I grew up around around radio and been in it professionally for 26 years. And uh, I've never seen or heard of anything like this happening where they take the entire tower. Beyond the shock, what does it mean for your programming and your listeners? Well, obviously, um, the AM, uh, we have an FM translator with it, fortunately. Mm-hmm. And our engineers, uh, I believe today, we were waiting on a police report to kind of file with the uh, FCC a, um, uh, a special temporary authority to uh, to have the AM, of course, down for now and the FM remain going for the, uh, the community. Um, as a service to the community, and uh, that will give us some time at least to to get a game plan together. Um, unfortunately, that site wasn't insured, so it's it's going to take some work down there, but that's something that we're determined to do. What's the financial hit? Oh, it, it could um, it's it could be in the six figures, you know. Um, so, then uh, that's major to us, you know, a, a small market station. What do you think they were after? I really don't know. Um, we've had a lot of theft in this area. You can raise several different theories, but, uh, you know, it's one thing to break in the building and steal, you know, equipment. But it, it takes a major, major doing to to topple a 200-foot tower. Yeah, it takes some planning, I would say. And certainly not I, I would say so. I would say so. Are there are there cameras anywhere? Well, luckily, uh, this facility is behind a major um, poultry um, plant. Mm-hmm. Um, in order, Actually, in order to get to the site, there's only one way in and one way out, and it's through their parking lot and around their property. Surely... Uh, there's uh, someone down there that has seen something, heard something. Uh, maybe they caught it on camera. I know the investigators were there this morning uh, talking with them about that. You haven't seen anything or heard anything in terms of that evidence yet? Uh, no, that's still ongoing from what I understand. I bet tips are, are coming in. Um, have you heard uh, how many yes. police are dealing with? Yes. Uh, and, of course, you're going to get good and bad tips, you know, mm-hmm. so they're trying to sort through what's credible and what's not. What's not. So uh, I'm going to let them do their work. I, I feel confident that they uh, will find who did this. I mean, it's a federal crime, and I hope whoever did it, uh, I hope they realize that it just wasn't uh, a few pieces of equipment and a tower. This is uh, something major. It's a federal offense, and, and uh, we hope that they're prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. I've never heard you speak before, but it sounds deflating, you know, for for you and a community station. Um, disappointing, apart from yeah, violating, yeah. obviously. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's uh, sort of like I told someone earlier today. I mean, uh, uh, the AM twelve forty—that's uh, a station that that means a lot to me because if that was, uh, you know, the station that my dad worked for, mm-hmm. you know, I've been the one. To, to kind of keep it going 
and have someone come down there and just absolutely vandalize everything. It's uh, disheartening a little bit, but, you know, the only way to look at it is this is in the rearview mirror now. We just have to look Mm -hmm. toward the future. There's nothing I can do about it now. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have to look forward to the future. Have, Have your listeners been checking in? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We we've got, we have a great uh, group of listeners. Um, uh, we've been around here for a long time, so uh, the community support is 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 great. Uh, I've heard from a lot of my colleagues, not only around the state of Alabama, but but all over, from words of encouragement to um, equipment, you know, in any way that they could help. So that's always encouraging, and uh, like I say, and that. That leads me back to what I say. You know, we are we're looking forward to the future, and then maybe we'll we'll come out of this thing ahead of the game. Brett, thanks for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Mm-hmm. Brett Elmore owns the radio station WJLX in Jasper, Alabama. That's where we reached him. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he wants to, quote, bring the border to Democratic cities to the north. And he's doing that by putting migrants who've crossed into his state on buses and sending them north to cities like New York, Chicago and Denver, which has put political pressure on leaders in those areas to act on the border issue. And they in turn are putting pressure on President Joe Biden to do more. Now the Senate has come up with a multi-billion dollar package that would make border enforcement faster and tougher and give the president new powers to expel migrants if authorities are overwhelmed. Meanwhile, in cities where the migrants keep arriving, people are still trying to help them. Erica Birchie is a volunteer with Highlands Moms and Neighbors. We reached her in Denver, Colorado. Erica, it was a particular scene in your own neighborhood that made you want to start volunteering. What happened? What did you see? Yeah, we had families on the streets, so just a few blocks from my house. Migrants were getting timed out of the shelter, and we had families and people in sandals and shorts, and um, it was in you know late fall in Denver, Colorado. So how did you get started? Uh, it started in a neighborhood Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Um, people were had a call out for clothing and aid items so tents and diapers and wipes and I loaded up items from my house Mm -hmm. uh, into the trunk of my car and went down to the encampment to hand them out. Have you been able to you've been speaking with people interacting with them Uh, I don't know if you, you all speak the same languages but if you do what kinds of things have they shared with you? Yeah, I mean, in fact, I don't speak, I speak, you know, mm-hmm. high school level Spanish from 10 years ago. So we've been communicating via Google Translate mm-hmm. mostly. 
so it is really just expressing of needs. And now we have this um, large Facebook group that has over 6,000 people, both community members, Denver community members and migrants, where we're able to connect through there as well. In, in as much as, as you've been able to communicate through Google Translate, as you said, what have people told you about what they want to achieve in the U.S., what their dreams are for coming here? Yeah, by far the most common thing is is employment. I mean, they've made this trek from their home countries because of lack of work opportunities, mm-hmm. and they're hoping to receive that here. Their dream isn't to stay in the shelters of Denver, clearly. No, no, <laughs> they want to be self-sufficient and be able to provide for their families. And in terms of how they feel about your help and the others in that big Facebook group that you guys have put together, how do they react to those volunteer efforts? I mean, there's, you know, tremendous amount of gratitude. They haven't experienced this amount of community support, you know, that I've heard of on, on their journey. Um, many have been bussed up here straight from Texas. And, and yeah, it's just a, a little bit of hope um, amongst mm-hmm. this crisis. The Globe and Mail, a newspaper here in Canada, says that there are nearly 4,000 people in shelters in Denver and that just over 38,000 migrants have arrived in Denver in the past 14 months. Can your city handle that kind of influx? I think Denver is at its breaking point. You know, through the last couple of months, families weren't being exited out of shelters, so they were able to get them off the streets. But just recently, as of actually today, families are now going to start being exited just because people keep coming and need shelter. And we are in the midst of winter here in Denver. And so it's difficult because you know that this crisis isn't going anywhere. And you also know that resources are limited. There is this deal before the Senate to create stricter measures at the border, and and that's in exchange for ongoing support for Ukraine. What do you make of the plan so far? I mean, (laughs) I don't have too much hope for it. It doesn't seem to tackle the need to do something for the thousands of people that are already here in the country, um, that are here ready to work and that have been let into our borders And it's also has been shown that deterrence doesn't work in our border. Focusing on that, you know, I I won't get into the Ukraine war, but it's disheartening. I think bigger, bigger steps are needed. Do you think that that in some ways the Texas governor's busing campaign has has paid off politically? Uh, Yeah, politically for him, for sure. It's it's creating a system of chaos in, in these Democratic-led cities and states and and is highlighting areas of our country that aren't working as well and I think historically haven't worked as well. And so, of course, the current political leadership is going to be blamed for that. Are you sensing a shift among Democrats in your city on the issue? In my city, no. I mean, our Facebook group in just a few months has grown to over 6,000 people that are willing to help these migrants in any way that we're able to. Mm -hmm. I think for sure in the surrounding cities that aren't as strong of a democratic hold that there are some fractures. Do you think there is room in your city and your state for 40,000 people and, and more? 
It's a tough question because we want to be a welcoming place for them. But yeah, Denver is realistically under a housing crisis right now. Um, our rents are not cheap. Yeah, so it's it's tough. It's to answer that. <laughs> so day to day, how do you, you know, what's tomorrow like for you as you try to help the migrants? Um, our focus right now is really is to try to advocate for work permits and, and um, an extension of TPS. We know that these people, they want to work. They want to be self-sufficient. They don't want to be reliant on our, you know, government um, support. And, and we want to be able to create a pathway for that. For our listeners, TPS is temporary protected status. Uh, I wonder, Erica, how likely do you think it is that that, that work you're doing f- to get those work permits will will yield some results? Yeah, I mean, I think federally, <laughs> the likelihood, unfortunately, is low in this election year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am really hoping that we can look to work creatively with the city and state um, and maybe find some other alternatives in order to help help these people work in our community. Erica, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Erica Birchie is part of a volunteer group that's helping migrants called Highlands Moms and Neighbors. She's in Denver. Evelyn Baudin is back on the job. At the end of October, the mayor of Sherbrooke, Quebec, took an indefinite leave of absence for the sake of her mental health. She's part of a growing cohort of elected officials who are speaking out about the toll a life in politics can take at every level of government. She says her goal now is, quote, just being well, unquote. She spoke with our colleagues in Quebec about what made her realize it was time to change gears. The people surrounding me were saying that uh, I looked different and I I had to say that they were right because I didn't feel well. Uh, I had some uh, physiological uh, symptoms and uh, I was not happy. I was not the same Evelyn than, than I was before because uh, usually I'm someone who uh, who likes to laugh and have fun and... I didn't find this person anymore at the at the end, and I think there there are some things that we could do to help uh, people in their role because right now we often feel alone, trying to solve many many problems without money, uh, without help. So I'm I'm pretty sure that it's not just uh, me. It's not just Evelyn Baudin. It's not just one person I think it's uh, I think we have a big uh, reflection to to make in all Quebec because some people leave during their mandate but many people also decide not to to run again in another election 
And many people just take a leave of absence and we never hear about it because they are not in a big city like Sherbrooke. So when you talk about feeling like you're, you're um, the target of everybody's attention, are you talking about that on the, the political level or is that also something you're feeling from, from just people, like residents or citizens of the city? Well, I, I see it more like it's a lot of responsibilities. We, when we think of a mayor, we see her or we see him as the head of a city, but it's I'm at the head of uh, a party, a political party uh, with members and a caucus and also the municipal council and also the employees. Uh, so it's, it's just a lot of pressure. And when you're at the head, people just expect you to solve all their problems. This is why it's so difficult. It's, uh, it's, it's because it's heavy. And you have to put a distance between some problems that you, you know you can't solve or they are not your, your problems, even if people want them uh, to be yours. But doing that, sometimes people are not happy. Evelyne Baudin is gradually returning to her official duties as the mayor of Sherbrooke, Quebec, after a three-month leave of absence. She was talking to the CBC's Gordon Lambie. Like many other Nova Scotians, Deanna Peters and her family have been doing a lot of shoveling. As you heard earlier in the show, more than 100 centimeters of snow was dumped on parts of the province in recent days. It prompted school closures, flight cancellations, and a local state of emergency in Cape Breton. Photos on social media show cars buried and snow piles reaching up to people's heads. And one photo of Ms. Peters' husband has generated a flurry of interest online. Deanna Peters owns Dream Stables in Albert Bridge, Cape Breton. That's where we reached her earlier today. Deanna, have you and your husband had a chance to recover? Or are you still shoveling today? Oh, we're still shoveling. Oh. We'll be shoveling, I think, for a few more days. Oh, the, I, your voice seems uh, hoarse. Have you been shouting across <laughs> the snow to you each know, other? You know what? My voice is hoarse. I'm, I'm wondering if we just worked a little too hard. How long were you out there? All day yesterday. We started the day before, and we've showed most of the day today. The aches, have they set in yet? Um, You know what? My husband's, I think, feeling it more than I am. Um, I'm running the barn more. I'm feeding the horses and taking care of the care of the animals, and he's been kind of biting into the big drifts, and he's got constant shoveling. Well, I'm looking at that now famous, infamous, depending on how you look at it, photo of your husband at first glance, it looks like it's at ground level, the photo. That doesn't tell the whole story, though. There's the side of a building. You can see to his right a very high snowdrift on the other side of him, very narrow passage. That snowdrift is much taller than he is. How tall is your husband? Well, I must tell you, he's actually standing on a roof. Yeah. That is not the ground. So that is our That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Is, yeah, that's actually, he's, he's about 5'9", and he's actually standing on a two-story building. That is stalls and then a hayloft, and he's standing on that. And that's a connecting burn. And the drift was about 25 feet. 
So we needed to get it removed because our horses are living in the barn, of course, and we have for fear of it collapsing. Yeah. We just didn't want to take any chances. How how are the horses now? They're fantastic. Um, they were more upset that they were stuck inside for too long. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they're great. It was just ourselves. And my father is in the tractor. He's been trying to snow blow as much as possible as well. Is it all sorted now, the snow up there gone as much uh, as possible? You know what? It's as best as we can get it. It's great for now, and we have no concern about it collapsing anymore. And we actually able, were able to get a lot of the horses out today. It's actually really nice and warm, but unfortunately the snow is wet, and it's very, very heavy. Have you ever been through a storm like this one? Never. We've had this business for 15 years, and it's the first time. And I must say, the drifts are so high, and we're nowhere near plowed out, so there's no action on the streets either. So, like, we can't have any friends come help us. What are your neighbors telling you? Our neighbor, we haven't really been speaking very often, because obviously we're at the barn a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do have a private group, and one of the neighbors had expressed that she's an ER nurse, and she's very concerned because she can't get out. There, Zach Churchill, the MLA for Yarmouth, has said he and his colleagues have heard of seniors trapped in their homes, dialysis patients who are unable to, to, to get to their treatments. How are you feeling about the response so far from, from officials? Well, to be honest, we're kind of disappointed because what if something happens? No one can get out here. Um, there's, I know it's a state of emergency for Cape Breton, and I just heard that a lot of businesses are being forced to be closed. But people like farmers or people in health, we really can't shut down. There's no such thing as a day off. I think Kent is there with you, your husband, yeah? Is yeah. He, is he well, actually, her? my husband's in the tractor right now. Oh. <laughs> um, he's trying to control a snowbank that kind of um, flopped over. So mm-hmm. it's blocking our door and blocking the window. So he's busy in the tractor. Oh. He wanted to be here, but uh, it's... But Underst- the snow called otherwise. <laughs> Understandable. It sounds like yes. it's sort of crisis to crisis. I mean, were yes. there, you, you guys are taking this in stride and doing okay. what you can, but were there any moments that you were genuinely frightened? I actually was nervous that the snow was going to cave in and actually kill Kent, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few times um, my brother tried to make his way over here and I'm walking to the barn and the snow was over our head. So we would sink down over our head and we'd have to just not panic and wait and try to mm-hmm. climb out of the hole. It was actually really, really scary yesterday. It's scary just hearing about it. You're you're quite tall. You're 5'11", right? I'm 5'11", yes. And my brother's also the same height. And um, we're used to working hard. We're, my husband's into fitness. He owns a jiu-jitsu gym mm-hmm. and I obviously run the horse table. But it was a lot for us. Um, we had to like lay on top of the snow and just wait till we could breathe and then continue on. And that's kind of how the day went. And and more of that to come, uh, it sounds like. I know you're there with, with your daughter warming yes. up. You were telling me earlier. How are they doing? A snow day is one thing, but yes. this is this is something else. Well, I'll be honest. My kids had stayed at my mom for two and a half days, so we didn't really see them. Um, so it's great to see my daughter. My father was able to plow it enough of a path from the driveway for the kids to come up safely today. Um, we've been cut off from our children, um, because of course, in times like this, they stay next door. I'm lucky that my mom is there and she had the grandkids. So we were all able to spend all of our hours at the barn trying to get the horses fed and safe. I'm lucky that I bought enough hay to last me for a full year. 
um, and we bought enough grain to last us two weeks. Mm-hmm. So we're okay in food sense. It's just the paths where I dug out um, keep filling in for the horses. So it's just constantly like reshoveling, reshoveling, and it just fills back in. Mm-hmm. As the snow gets wetter, it's kind of collapsing. It was actually easier when it was light. Mm-hmm. And that that food is for the horses, though. What about you? Do you guys have enough supplies? I think the horses are eating better than us. Um, we're having a lot of peanut butter and toast. We have a deep freeze, but we don't have time to cook right now. We'll get to that when, when things are settled at the barn. Well, Deanna, I appreciate you taking some some time. Stay warm. All right. Thank you for reaching out. Deanna Peters is the owner of Dream Stables in Albert Bridge, Cape Breton. That's where we reached her earlier today. Some pigeons in Toronto are on birth control. If you've never lived amongst flocks of roving pigeons, you may wonder why. If you have lived amongst them, or you currently do, like if there are several pigeons currently charging right at you as though you're not there and dozens more circling overhead, you may have a pretty good idea why a city might want to control the pigeon population. Esther Attard is the chief veterinarian and director at Toronto Animal Services. She spoke with the CBC this morning about the pilot project. This method of using ovocontrol has been used in the U.S. and Europe and has been successful. There's a really good study out of Catalonia in Spain where they did a really great study over the past eight years, and it's shown to be successful. It it takes some work, but it is, again, a really humane way, and we're always looking for those kinds of ways to be able to deal with um, conflicts between animals and people in the city. Okay, so walk me through the practicality of this. This is effectively a birth control pill in pellet form, in birdseed form. How do you get the pigeons to take it and take it on the regular? Yeah, so it takes some time to condition them to feed from the feeding stations. The feeding stations are located on roofs of buildings so that we're not interfering with other things going on in the area. And so other animals can't get at them and it's going to the pigeons. And so it takes some time to condition them to feed. They like to feed in the morning. So at sunrise. And so we set the feeders, they, they're automatic and they can be set for any time to release the food. And they release a certain amount of food for the size of the flock so that we're sure that everybody's getting enough. Um, and they do need to come daily to feed. It doesn't harm them in any way. If they're off the food, they can start to breed again. So it does, you know, it and it does take time to set up. The feeder sometimes doesn't work. The cameras, we have um, trail cams on the area. Sometimes they don't work. And so we can't really see what's going on. Um, so it, it took us a few months to get things sorted, to find places that were adequate, that were suitable, that also had um, issues with pigeons. Um And once we connected everything, we um, contacted the um, company that manufactures the product, Mm -hmm. as well as the company that's distributing and administering it in Toronto area, um, and worked with them really successfully to come up with four areas that we could manage. uh, And that we could... well, we have, I can't, I'm not going to say exactly where they are, Mm -hmm. because we don't want people to know, but we have two in the downtown area in um, East York area and North York area. Um, And we're adding, we're going to add another station in the downtown area. Um, And we're 
looking to see, you know, we're, we're monitoring them, looking at the photos and seeing who's coming back and who keeps coming because they do come for the food. Um, we're talking to people in the area, the businesses, residents to see what they're experiencing and to see if they're noticing a difference. Esther Attard is the Chief Veterinarian and Director at Toronto Animal Services. She was speaking to David Common, host of Metro Morning Today. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.